Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. At Dublin BIC, we work with startups from the early stage, helping founders get ready to launch right up to the later stage company that requires additional funding and support to scale internationally. I'm Connor Carmody, and I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore the emerging trends in the world of technology and business. Today, we will be looking at what's happening in the area of environmental sustainability and looking at it, I suppose, from an innovation and business perspective. As we all know, climate change impacts will continue to increase in the coming years and decades. And the big challenge for humanity, many will argue, is how effectively government, business and individuals can work together to reduce carbon emissions. This urgent demand has been the catalyst for the creation of many new businesses in the sustainability space, creating what many refer to as the green economy. So that's the issue to be explored during the show. And to help us with this, first up, we're delighted to have Brian Kennedy of Clearstream Solutions join us. And Brian will help us discuss the challenges presented and the innovations that are being developed to solve these issues. Did you know that May 20th is World Bee Day? And I read somewhere that a third of the world's food production depends on bees. You could say every third spoonful of food depends on pollination. We need the bees to survive. So this week, we'll hear from Dr. Fiona Edwards-Murphy of Apis Protect on how they can help beekeepers reduce honeybee losses and increase productivity with their state-of-the-art technology. And finally, we all know that energy production and usage is one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions. And I'm delighted to have on the show today an Irish entrepreneur who has harnessed this technology and innovation to address the issue. Welcome to the founder and CEO of Grid Beyond, Michael Phelan, who will be here to chat with us later in the show. So each week in our Future Scope slot, we explore trends in a particular sector, providing the global perspective and also what's happening on the ground locally. We discuss the challenges that are being presented and the innovations that are being developed to solve these. And today, we're delighted to have Brian O'Kennedy of Clearstream Solutions join us this afternoon to help us understand the challenges and I suppose how business is harnessing new technologies to respond to these challenges. Brian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Connor. Delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Maybe I could kick off with, um, I suppose, a high-level question and maybe talk about some of the trends that you're seeing. We're talking about climate and sustainability what are the trends that you're seeing around energy, waste, transport, uh, areas like that? Yeah, it's a very interesting time in sustainability now, Connor. Um, essentially, we all thought in some way that uh, COVID would, uh, might uh, in some way deprioritize the issue of sustainability and climate. In fact, it's had quite the opposite effect. So there's a whole range of very exciting initiatives um, and, and changes occurring in this space at the moment. Um, companies are increasingly being asked to measure and disclose their their carbon emissions. That's a, that's a very big one from right from the large companies to the small companies. Um, we're seeing a big focus on biodiversity and an increasing focus on biodiversity. Uh, where I guess uh, whether it's because of COVID and our increased sensitivities and heightened awareness of the fragility of our planet. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also a lot of activity in a space uh, the, in the circular economy space. Uh, which is really around better use of materials and, and uh, making uh, better use of the resources that we have and, and circling them in, in the economy. So in, in the environmental space, they're, they're probably the most active uh, areas at the moment. 
Excellent. Brian, go back on, on biodiversity. I think emissions were probably all fairly clear on and the circular economy I want to come to because I want to spend a bit of time on that. Maybe just for our listeners, explain biodiversity to us. So essentially, this is the natural world around us. Mm. Um, and, and as much as, uh, as climate uh, is somewhat, uh, let's say, abstract in the senses that we don't necessarily see it, it has a very direct impact on, on, on water, on trees, on our, our climate, on, uh, on agriculture. Uh, so all of these things are very, very practical and real. And while we've been looking at measuring carbon emissions and, and global warming and assessing that for, for quite some time, we're really only at an early stage of, of understanding what impact we're having on biodiversity. Uh, it's more complex, there's more science involved, but there is a requirement and, and an increasing uh, pressure from, from a number of sources, including investors and businesses, that, that organizations, companies, and, and, and all of us will have a better understanding as to the impact we're having on things like water and, okay. uh, uh, and the natural environment. Very good. Um, you mentioned business there and uh Talk to me and, and COVID and we, and we thought things might change, but, but and they have changed, in fact, with COVID. But talk to me about the importance of climate change and that, that all those changes that are happening to business. What kind of challenges, specific challenges are business facing, do you think? Yeah, as I said, it's a very interesting time. When we set up Clearstream Solutions now, it's almost 13 years ago, um, sustainability and climate were very, like what I call, hygiene factors for most businesses, big or small. They were kind of and add on to our CSR policy or yeah. uh, work that we were doing in marketing. It's very different now. So, so the sustainability is a competitive issue, and companies are competing on their ability to provide more sustainable products and services. So we see, you know, we see the consumer increasingly spending uh, money or, wish, or being willing to spend money on products that are more sustainable. There's evidence to suggest that upwards of, of products that have, let's say, sustainable branding yeah. are selling it up to seven times faster than, than products that don't. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very exciting and important time for businesses right. in terms of the, the competitive space. So it's no longer an add-on. It's, it's really the way that, that businesses are now conducting themselves. So for the business uh, of today and tomorrow, it's got to be central. It's not, it's not something that you kind of think about as the afterthought and it, it's central to it. Uh, maybe just pick up one other thing. You mentioned... Uh, emissions uh, broadly how are we doing against our targets i mean are we doing the right things uh globally to to kind of get 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 that under control yeah i'm, I'm hopeful connor on the emissions side um we're doing a lot of really good work on renewables and the carbon intensity of our grid is coming down very rapidly there's some really uh, excellent work and investment going into that sector place where I'm a little bit more concerned, so at least 50% of our emissions um, are associated with, with energy and fuels. And as mm. I said, we're making some good progress there. The other side, the other 50% is in the materials that we purchase and, and use. And that's where we're, do, we're not doing so well, um, because essentially products and materials that we, we use, we're, we're still in this linear supply chain model where we're still buying stuff, making it, and, and dumping it. Yeah. And, and we need to change those models. And that's where I think there's the probably... While it's the biggest issue and challenge for us, it's probably also the biggest opportunity for, for many companies and, and small companies in particular to innovate in this circular economy space. Right. So so we'll move on. We'll, and you, you mentioned at the outset the circular economy, and it's a kind of a very hot topic at the moment. Maybe, again, just for, for me, for our listeners, explain the circular economy. What do we mean by that? Yeah, so I suppose most people see the circular economy 
um, in their own homes in terms of recycling and, and you know, avoiding waste. Um, and essentially, the circular economy is about uh, reusing materials and keeping materials and products at their highest level of use. So it's things like life extension, uh, extending the life of products. So things like repairing, uh, refurbing, reuse, and, and also things like sharing. The sharing economy is mm. a big part of that. So you know, rather than having a car which sits outside the door and we only use it 5% of the time, the circular economy would say we should be sharing. Um, and, and I think you can see evidence of the circular economy all around us and, and developing uh, sharing platforms, uh, paper use uh, services, so that rather than owning assets, um, we, we pay for their use or the experience rather than, than the physical material. And does that also then include, include I suppose, repurposing? So I, I saw an ad on, on somewhere recently around, you know, swapping and sharing clothes and, and that whole area of, so, so when I buy something, I don't just throw it out, I, I reuse it or else I gift it or I swap it on a platform and somebody buys it off me? Yeah, absolutely, Connor. That's exactly what the circular economy is about. And it's about giving, giving greater access to materials that, and, and products without having to go and fork out the big, the big bucks to, uh, to, to acquire them. Um, so there's a social aspect, there's an environmental aspect, uh, there's there's a service aspect, and you'll see a lot of retailers. I mean, there's some you know, very well, let's say, well-known uh, what would have been traditional linear model retailers like IKEA and, and closer to home, the likes of Brown Thomas and others, who are moving some of their business models to circular models, whereby you know people won't necessarily buy the product anymore; they'll they'll share it uh, and exchange it and, yeah. and bring it back and. So I think there's a huge opportunity for innovation, for, for particularly for startups, because actually, ironically, it's easier for smaller companies and startups to get into the circular economy and to disrupt, if you like, the large linear service providers who, who find it difficult and, and, and it's difficult to be agile in this space. So there's great opportunity. I heard this morning on the radio uh, a, um, uh, an Irish uh, dairy farmer who's developed a, a milk bottle vending machine where you can bring back your old milk bottles, get them washed, get them replaced. So that type of circular economy process whereby we're bringing consumers back to our stores and, and our shops and we're using less materials and resources as a result. Very exciting, lots of innovation and plenty of opportunities for, for startups and, and companies to, uh, to develop their models. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, it's a lovely example there of the, of the milk bottle um, uh, if I think about technology um, enabling innovation in this space, uh, have you seen much uh, around how we're using that technology to change and to, and to adopt some of these new practices? Yeah, so I think on on the uh, if you take the energy and fuel side, there's a huge amount of really exciting and interesting work, and the whole electrification of our of our systems is very interesting in that space. And we've seen new technologies such as solar. Um, which was, was uh, let's say, not particularly applicable here for ourselves, really come down in price. So there's, there's a lot of stuff happening within the energy space. Mm. Uh, very exciting. Uh, on the other side, the technology, um, uh, if I deal with the circular economy back there again, but yeah. the ability to track products, the ability to provide platforms and information as to where uh, materials may be uh, reused or how we might even share and, and you know whether even the likes of the Airbnbs or all of these sharing platforms, the technologies allow us to better access and, and therefore use more uh, materials in a more efficient uh, way. So, so those type of tracking and tracing technologies such as blockchain, uh, RFID tagging, 
Um, and also there's, there's a whole plethora of really interesting apps coming out. Um, one, one shout out to a, an, an Irish company that started recently, Ethicart. Uh, yeah. They've developed an app to help you measure the sustainability of a product that you buy. So you wow. can scan the product in the store. It tells you about the sustainability of the, the product, the company and the materials. So we'll see these type of, of applications uh, facilitate the transition and, and basically allow us to rate and rank and better understand because sustainability is a bit confusing for a lot of people yeah, and they yeah. don't really understand how to, to measure. So a lot of these technologies will help us to better understand the provenance and source of our materials and products and to be able to make better informed decisions. Fantastic. Uh, can I ask you, uh, I was reading something recently and it seems like a, a big topic for a Sunday afternoon, but value chain decarbonisation. What on earth is that? <laughs> Okay, great, great question. But very simply, that is most of our emissions, if you look at a regular business, we have emissions in our energy and we have emissions in our fuel. And they're typically what we call scope one and scope two. Outside of that, we have a whole range of other emissions that we have an impact on. So things that we buy and sell, um, uh, materials. So all of those other things that we talked about, they're all in our value chains. They're either upstream value chain or downstream value chain. In order to reduce and to hit our emissions targets, we need to spend as much time, in fact, more time working on our value chain emissions. And they're, they're the stuff that they're the things that we buy yeah. and the things that we sell and how our customers use our products. So value chain emissions and to be able to offset your value chain emissions are working with your suppliers and working with your customers and collaborating in a way that the whole system gets decarbonized. So hopefully that's a little clearer. That's a big word for, for essentially working with your partners to reduce your upstream and downstream emissions, which might be indirect from your business. So as a business, looking at your value chain from top to bottom and understanding how best do I kind of reduce my emissions, my footprint across that whole value chain. Exactly. And what we find for most organisations, at least 60, 70 or even 80, and for retailers, up to 90% of their emissions are in this indirect space where they go, well, I don't have control over it immediately. It's not in my, yeah. inside my four walls and my operations. But actually, the reality is, for most companies, it's about how you buy, how you spend your money. Can you buy reduced emissions products? Can you buy them in a more carbon-efficient way? And the same thing downstream. When people use my products, can they be more efficient? So this trickle-down, so the big companies are all about trying to reduce their value chain emissions. That means that every company who's supplying to Another company, a bigger company maybe, is part of that reduction. And this is where the trickle down is coming, Connor, because this is where the competitive issue comes. If I'm a large corporate and I want to reduce my value chain emissions, I can only do that with my suppliers. Right. OK, understood. You mentioned there the big companies uh, and we're all about startups and innovators here. Um, how do the big or how do the startups influence the big companies? Because we know that those kind of bigger ships take a bit of time to turn. So in your view or what you're seeing, how are the startups kind of uh, bringing that to bear on the bigger companies? Yeah, agility, disruption, um, uh, innovation. Um, uh, the, the, the large companies really struggle with some of these systemic changes um, uh, because they're siloed. They've been built on, on uh, over long periods of time and, and they're very functionally structured. Smaller companies and SMEs and startups have the ability to innovate at speed and to change at speed. And that's critical in this new sustainability world. And actually, ironically, what we're seeing is the big brands start to, if you like, de-brand some of their products and make them more, more local, more, feel more authentic and more 
community based and there's a real uh, i suppose a direction for for locally sourced local uh, local community activities yeah, yeah. so so the, the the smaller companies have an advantage in that space because they can move faster they don't have the legacy issues that large corporates have around equipment and and uh, and they can also appeal in a different way to to the consumers the consumers yeah. want smaller local uh, more more ethically sourced uh, all of those issues and they can get that a little easier and feel that relationship Fantastic. with smaller smaller yeah. brands and, and SMEs Great news for the startups and the innovators listening this morning or this afternoon Brian we have literally 30 seconds left in one sentence what's the most exciting innovation or trend that you're seeing coming down the track to us Circular economy for me is the big is the big game changer Right If we can really transition our whole economy more circular fashion and we have all the tools and technologies it's a great source of innovation it's a great source of innovation for SMEs and startups look to disrupt those linear models go find the waste and uh, let's and let's Brilliant. remove it let's uh, let's find ways of, of avoiding it thank you happening so much. in the first place thank you Brian uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon Brian that's uh, it's great to chat and that was Brian O'Kennedy of Clearstream Solutions So moving on, each week we bring you an innovator who has spotted a gap in the market and is developing a new product to address that gap. And now they're going to tell us the why and the how. I'm delighted to be joined this week by Dr. Fiona Edwards-Murphy of Apis Protect. Hi Fiona, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hi Connor. thanks so much for having me on. Great to have you. Um, Let's get started. Tell us about Apis Protect. What do you do? Great. So what we do at Apis Protect is we use a combination of Internet of Things technologies and machine learning to help beekeepers reduce losses and increase productivity in their hives. So essentially, we put sensors inside the beehive and help beekeepers uh, understand their hives better. Wow. We were talking earlier on um, about climate and sustainability. So you have a couple of things going on there. One is around the whole kind of IoT and machine learning. We'll come back to that. But the other is... I suppose, what prompted you to start this? Is there a problem with bees and productivity and, you know, how how bees support this planet of ours? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a big problem around bees at the moment. Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, we've got bees uh, and they help us produce about a third of the food that we eat every day. Uh, so what they provide to, to humans is pollination. Essentially, if you're producing crops like almonds, avocados, kiwis, blueberries, um, we rely on bees to actually pollinate those plants. So basically touch all of the flowers and, and spread the pollen around and help those plants to trigger the thing that allows them to produce the fruit and nuts that we actually eat. Um, so we need bees to be available at, in as much abundance as possible, especially nearby farms. Uh, but the problem is over the last 20 or 30 years, as the demand for this kind of food has been higher than it's ever been before in history, uh, at the same time, uh, beekeeping has become a lot more difficult. There's diseases, there's pests, there's problems that are more prevalent all over the world than they've ever been before. Beekeeping is becoming more difficult. So simultaneously, the demand for the food that bees are really important uh, for has increased. And at the same time, the amount of bees that are available for pollination has decreased. So what we're trying to do is help beekeepers um, scale up 
their beekeeping to match that demand for their services, uh, basically trying to um, you know, bring beekeeping from, you know, it's a very, very traditional form of agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it, it works basically the same way almost as it did in the Middle Ages, where you might use a forklift to move your beehives around. Yeah. And we're trying to catch those beekeepers all the way up to the most modern technologies that are out there, like IoT and machine learning. Fantastic. Um, I'll come back to that in a sec. Uh, what, so I understand that demand has increased for food. Obviously, population is growing, etc. Why are bees in decline? Oh, that's it's, that's a really <laughs> complicated uh, question to answer. I mean, it's really the biggest problem that beekeepers have is that they're dealing with an awful lot of problems at the same time. Right. So, first of all, we've moved beehives all over the world. We've moved bees from Asia to the USA and the European bees to Asia and the European bees to the USA and the USA bees back to Europe. And we've spread all of the diseases and pests from all the different bees around the world to each other. Okay. Uh, so they now have way more diseases and pests than they used to have in any place. And at the same time, you know, we've got the intensification of intensification of agriculture. There's less, you know, wildflowers available for them to feed on when we're not, you know, when, when almond flowers and stuff like that aren't blooming. Yeah. Um, you've got, you know, uh, just general at uh, the fact that when you're trying to manage 10,000 beehives instead of 10 beehives, uh, problems like beehives falling over or, um, you know, a queen dying and you not knowing about it as a beekeeper, those become much bigger problems when you've got so many beehives to try and manage at the same time. So it's it's really beekeepers are trying to juggle so many problems at one time. Okay. And, yeah. yeah. That, so that, we, ha- we, ha- we have a demand issue in terms of food and we have a, a supply of bees as the other issue. How then are you solving that problem or how are you helping to address that problem? Yeah, so it's um, really, what we do is really straightforward. So we don't try at Aces Protect, we don't try to uh, fix really, really complicated problems for beekeepers. We actually focus on helping them know about really, really straightforward problems, but know about them as, as soon as they happen. So what we do is we put the sensors inside the beehive, so we're collecting things like temperature and humidity and sound data from the beehive. We look at the patterns in that data over time, and then we're able to identify for the beekeepers, okay, uh, you know, you've got 20 beehives, here's the five of them that are behaving differently to the rest of them. And here are the five that are behaving differently to all the other beehives in your area as well. So those are the five beehives that you need to look at when you're trying to identify a problem. So what we do is we highlight these are beehives that are behaving differently, that are growing differently. They could be drinking, they could be growing faster, which would be a good problem. Yeah. Or they could be, um, you know, we do even more straightforward things like uh, send, send, send the beekeeper a text when their beehive falls over because you have kind of like, you're on the clock then once your beehive falls over, you're on the clock to get out there how, how, long, how, long, how long do you have to t- fix that beehive oh it depends on the weather outside so during the winter it could be you know half an hour or an hour before wow. the bees will die or in the summertime it's really more of a race between uh, you and when the bees decide okay let's go find a new home because this one's destroyed and they disappear off into the woods <laughs> oh, fascinating you mentioned so so you're observing these beehives you're tracking them you're monitoring them and you're reporting back then to the beekeepers and you mentioned mm-hmm. to me iot and machine learning um Explain that to our listeners. How does that work? Yeah, uh, those are two <laughs> really complicated things. And I'm like, I've been working. My own background is in engineering and, and IoT specifically, and I've never really liked the name IoT because <laughs> right. it makes what we do sound way more technical than it is. Basically, the Internet of Things is putting sensors in the real world and using that data to do something meaningful. So, like the speedometer in your car is the Internet of Things, yeah. technically, <laughs> yes. you know, things like that. So, basically, what IoT is, we put sensors inside the beehive and we collect data that will be useful to help understand the beehive 
And then machine learning is the way that we actually process that data. So obviously, if you put sensors in 100 beehives, and you know we've got four sensors in every beehive, and they're sending data every 10 minutes, that's an awful lot of data. So machine learning is basically a computer algorithm or a computer that we've trained to look at the data as it comes in. So instead of expecting the beekeepers to uh, learn what a temperature graph inside the beehive looks like and then apply that knowledge all the time to a big graph that they then have to keep checking, we've got a computer that's learned what these graphs look like, and it looks at the, the graph, the new data as it comes in, and it says, hey, this looks like a pattern that I saw before when a beehive was unhealthy, or this is a pattern that I saw before when a beehive was queenless or it fell over. You know, so it's basically looking for patterns that it's seen before in the past, and it's able to say, put up its hand and say, hey, uh, based on this data that I'm looking at here, this hive, hive number six, is, um, you know, is declining, it's dying. So you need to get out there and do something about it. That's a a wonderful explanation. Um, We did hear uh, last week on IoT and uh, somebody said to me that Paul from Daverham said, we'll know IoT is successful when we don't talk about IoT anymore. Uh, Which I thought was, was, and you're saying exactly the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Explain, uh, I'd like to just, so I met you a couple of years ago uh, as you were at the early stage. What's... um, What's happened with the business since then over the last... You, you've expanded. You're, you're growing at a, 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 an enormous rate. Tell, tell us a little bit about where you're at on that journey. Yeah, we're, we're really happy with how, how things are going at the moment. So um, last year, um, in late 2020, we launched our first product. So our um, commercial uh, beekeeper product, basically, um, we've got one specific technology for large-scale beekeepers in the U.S. So we launched that last year. Obviously, it was a challenging year. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Irish company launched our product in the U.S., but we did, we brought on, we've actually got a sales team based now in, in South Dakota, so right there in the middle of the beekeepers. So that was actually a, almost a good outcome of COVID was that it pushed us forward to, to take that step. So we've got someone based in the market over there now. And in early 2021, so in, in January of this year, we launched our uh, hobbyist technology here in Ireland. So um, again, kind of out of COVID, we were like, look, here's the beekeepers that we're physically near. Let's get our technology into their beehives. Um, so, and so, that, we, so, so you say a hobbyist? That's for the kind of the amateur, if I can, well, beekeeper. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a great hobbyist is the only definition or the only word that we can come up with to yeah. describe it. Uh, but I mean, like, I certainly am not disparaging those beekeepers. I mean, like, it is very serious. Keeping bees in Ireland is it's a, it's a challenging environment. Anyone yeah. who's doing any kind of gardening or beekeeping or anything at the moment and uh, looking at the weather will know. Yeah, <laughs> it's a challenging country to keep bees in. Um, so yeah, it's really about it, it's small scale. So if you've got one or two beehives, this kind of technology will work for you. Rather than our US one, where it's like, oh, you need a minimum of two hundred beehives for this technology to work for you. So it's really about you know small numbers of beehives here in Ireland. So we launched that um, technology in January. We're doing pre-orders uh, for the the uh, devices will be delivered uh, later on in the summer. Uh, we're actually almost sold out of them. Brilliant. So that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic news for me and any beekeepers who are listening who might be interested. Get, get your name on one. <laughs> order quick, order quick. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're really excited about that and really excited to be bringing this technology a lot earlier than we expected to be able to to, to Irish beekeepers and uh, really excited to, to go into the rest of Europe over the next few years as well. Brilliant. Um, is it a big market? Uh, when, you, when you were designing this product and thinking about the size of the market, um, how big is it? I mean, if bees play such a central role in our life, um, there must be a, an enormous untapped market for what you're offering. There is, absolutely. So uh, globally, there's about 91 million managed beehives. And when we're thinking about our technology in the markets where you've got that intense 
uh, you know, pollination or really intense honey production, beekeeping. There's about 28 million beehives in that category. So they'd be kind of um, Europe, the Americas and Australia and New Zealand is really the countries that we're thinking about there. That's where we've got either a really significant pollination industry or a very high quality honey um, industry. Um, and then when you go on to the holidays, again, that's uh, multiples of that market. So we're focused right now on Europe where we've got about 7 million beehives here in our, in our hobbyist market across, across the European Union. Seven million hobbyist beehives. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. You, ca- you can't describe it as amateur. It's a thriving kind of ecosystem. It's, tri- it's huge. Yeah, exactly. Like as a hobbyist in, you know, inverted commas market here in Europe, uh, there's actually almost four times as many beehives in the hobbyist market in Europe than there is in the commercial industry in the US, for example. Wow. So it's just a huge market. Brilliant. Yeah. Fiona, listen, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, f- wonderful to hear your, your progress and success and the very best of luck for the future. Thanks so much, Connor. It was great to talk. Thanks indeed. I'll chat soon. That's Fiona Edwards-Murphy of Apis Protect. So I just want to pick up on something that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, um, and it's it's around funding. We continually talk about it as part of the show. Um, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes to explain about angel funding, because I know it comes up uh, in, 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 in our conversations. Uh, I'd particularly like to talk about HBAN, which is the Halo Business Angel Network, uh, and, and explain a little bit about that. So to start, what is an angel and what is angel funding? Well, I suppose firstly, an angel is a high net worth individual and they invest uh, their own money in startup companies and they do that in exchange for an equity share of the business. And angels typically tend to be former entrepreneurs themselves. Why are they doing this? Uh, well, they make investments in order to gain a return on their on their money. Um, they do want to participate in that entrepreneurial process, having done it once they, they enjoy and they want to stay involved. And they do want to give back a little bit, I think, by, you know, into the community or into a particular sector uh, by by uh, assisting economic growth. So they make their return when the entrepreneur grows the business and, and exits it generally by selling the business. So what about HBAN? Well, HBAN is the All-Ireland umbrella group responsible for the promotion of business angel investing. And effectively, it is a matching organisation in that it finds angel investors, finds entrepreneurs and connects them together. It's a matching process. Uh, On the founder side, um, HBAN works with entrepreneurs, identifies, screens, prepares companies that are looking to, to raise seed investment to connect with the angels. And the the primary way they do that is through pitching sessions. So HBAN would run probably about 50 pitching sessions a year. Um, so lots of matchmaking going on there. And I guess the primary areas of focus for the for the angel investors are probably in the area of, you know, ICT or fintech, software generally, medtech and others. Um, so a thriving ecosystem going on uh, within that HBAN area. If that's of interest to you and you want to have a chat, you could go to hban.org or indeed drop us a line at startup at dublinbic.ie. And that's the inside track for today on HBAN. We'll take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment for our big interview with Michael Phelan of Grid Beyond. Don't go away. So welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. Starting and scaling a business is tough. We know that. And each week we speak to one founder who has succeeded to see if we can uncover some ingredient, something in there that might just inspire or motivate our listeners here this afternoon. Founded in 2007, Grid Beyond works in partnership with grid operators worldwide to deliver a solution to energy challenges through its technology. 
And since launch has deployed this award-winning platform at over 400 sites worldwide, um, working with some of the planet's best-loved brands. And today, to explain all about that to us, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Phelan, who's the CEO of Grid Beyond. Good afternoon, Michael, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, to get us started, tell us a bit about you and your background. You're a Kilkenny man originally, I believe. Yeah, I've been, uh, I was involved in the technology business for a good number of years, maybe about 30 years at this stage. Yeah. Um, worked abroad in places like Philips in Eindhoven in the Netherlands, then came back to Ireland, did an MBA, and I got interested in uh, businesses and growing businesses. So, so there's a for you. There's a very strong tech background, and and you know, as we work our way through the show and the episodes, we we kind of find that that mix between the technology and the business uh, expertise. So, I'm looking forward to exploring uh, that with you. Um, you originally set up the company, and it was called Endico, uh, and you started as a consultancy business, as I as I believe. Tell me a little bit about kind of. I suppose first question is what prompted the move from Philips into the world of entrepreneurship? Well, I, I suppose at Philips I learned a lot about uh, technology and uh, kind of large scale, how maybe technology is mapped on markets. And uh, when you want to start up a business, it's kind of doing that at a probably at a large enough level as well, trying to see a market opportunity. Yeah. In other words, a change in the market and then mapping the technology onto that market as opposed to the other way around. You get a lot of research happening that isn't really focused on a very clear problem and uh, then it doesn't really go anywhere and I did see that in Philips and I did see some of when they actually mapped it onto particular markets you started to see success or how you might be successful. It's a lovely insight that piece of start with the market opportunity and, and kind of and then figure out how to solve the problem and, and you're right we do see a lot of, of I have a particular solution now I'm going to go and find a problem for it. Yeah that, that can lead to um, you going down a blind alley like you could be starting solving a problem that doesn't really exist or certainly doesn't have a monetary value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you started with, with Endico uh, and that was a consultancy business. What were you doing there? Well, at, at that time we were looking to um, start to develop our products because obviously you don't start with a, a product. So you need to gather the requirements, if you like, of the market. So I have, would have already had a good understanding of uh, energy markets, uh, what might be happening, the fact there's a lot of renewables going onto the market and the fact that they need um, flexibility and storage to balance them. So I wanted to test the thesis and right. actually see that there was indeed a need and a market opportunity to putting uh, flexibility assets and storage into markets. Yeah. And uh, we would have started doing that. We'll get you to explain that um, uh, to us in a little bit because we're going to talk about uh, Grid Beyond. But that's, again, a lovely insight around testing your hypothesis or testing you know, the market. Uh, and it was great to see you. We are going to talk about Grid Beyond in a moment and we'll get you to explain all that and simplify it for us laymen. Um, but we earlier on in the show have been talking about climate and sustainability and that whole world. Uh, I'd love to get your insights on some of those big changes that are happening in the world around us. Yeah, there, there, there is a uh, particular path that we're on at the moment. We're adding a lot of uh, wind in particular in Ireland and, and I guess solar now in Ireland as well and solar in many countries. Yeah. So this, this will help to uh, obviously harvest the, the elements as opposed to extracting things from the ground and burning them. So it is uh, the beginnings of, uh, I suppose, a transition to low carbon and uh, it has been going, I suppose, with um, a good bit of success, I suppose, over the last number of years. It's probably accelerating now and accelerating more 
post-COVID as people start to realise that, you know, things do go wrong. Yeah. And if we don't um, treat the planet well, we will have problems down the road. And in your view then, just to pick that up, is that the big shift that we're now, the future of energy is in kind of wind and solar as opposed to trying to dig it out of the ground? Is that is that kind of, are we at that inflection point? We seem to be very close to it. There's certainly a lot of interest from uh, governments, from uh, companies, from, I guess, the general population to to cause that transition to happen. And uh, we are starting to see that they in stock markets and that people are valuing more renewable companies and people who are part of the solution, if you like, for the energy transition as opposed to people who are the traditional fossil fuel companies. And if I could maybe just get your view on it then, so if we're kind of just coming to the inflection point, when does, when if, if, if it's not already, when is wind and solar and those renewables, when are they mainstream? take a number of years in that they, they are intermittent, so they're not there all the time so we have to solve the other side of it that we still have to keep the lights on at all times. Yeah. So that's where the flexibility and storage come, come in that we are able to store the energy when we have an abundance of wind or an abundance of solar and uh, we then can supply that energy at times when we don't have an abundance of both and that could be that we've stored it in batteries in existing assets like for example a uh, coal store or a reservoir or something right but it could also be that we've made hydrogen and we use the hydrogen to generate electricity okay i'm going to jump into some of these i'm loving this uh, and it brings us i suppose what exactly does grid beyond do you're in that you're in that space i believe of helping operators balance energy demand have i got that correct yeah that's correct so we're um if we're solving the problems if you like that renewables cause the so renewables are intermittent they're not there all the time. You can forecast them. So we would try to forecast when wind will blow, when the sun will shine, when that energy is going to be available. And then we would also try to uh, identify the flexibility that's out there, gather that flexibility, and then use that to balance and fill in the gaps when the renewable isn't there. So that's that energy intelligence uh, that you talk about. It is, yes. It's basically the whole grid is changing from a supply side-based system where you basically just turn on more generation yeah. as the demand increases to a demand-side type situation where you have flexible demand and you can increase or decrease demand depending on the amount of renewable on the grid. So, so it's a, a fundamental change. So therefore, for the grid operator, you know, in this country, it might be an ESB networks or something, they have both traditional uh, forms of energy that they're pulling out of the ground and then they have solar and hydrogen and or solar and wind and what they're trying to figure out is how do I balance that load and when do I go to one side and when do I go to the other side? Exactly, yeah. So there's a whole traded market for energy, both long-term and short-term. And in the short-term markets, your fundamental objective is to balance supply and demand. Explain that to me. That's lovely. A traded market in the short-term and in the long-term. Explain that for our listeners on this Sunday afternoon. So generally, on the, in the long term, people want some certainty into, as to what they will pay for energy. So they will hedge a certain right. amount of yeah. their purchases out forward yeah. and maybe buy either electricity from a renewable supplier or buy gas for a combined cycle generator out into a number of years, maybe fixing 50, 60, 70% of their purchase. So they know what they're going to pay for that quantity. And then they might flex the rest of it or make the rest of it flexible in short-term markets. Right. So that would be things like the day ahead, the intraday and the balancing mechanism markets. And then people like us would optimise the flexible assets into those markets. Wow. 
this, this so very similar, I suppose, to how airlines uh, kind of buy their fuel forward, or they buy oil, or they buy so so in in terms of an energy market, it's exactly the same thing. Exactly, it's it's the same principle. So people want to take it want a certain amount of certainty on their budgets, so they will fix a certain amount out forward, but then they will flex a certain amount, which is very suitable as well for balancing renewables because the price of energy tends to be high when there's not much renewable on the grid. So when the wind is not blowing and the sun isn't shining, typically are burning fossil fuels and the, the prices are higher. Whereas when they're price takers in the market, so when they're all on the market, the price is lower. Right. But if I go back to so little this little island of ours, and you know, you talk about wind and solar, and it seems to me we've lots of wind and not so much solar. Is that an oversimplification? Yes, we have lots of wind, but we are adding solar. So there has been a Res 1 option, which added about a gigawatt of solar, or is planning to add a gigawatt of solar over the next one to two years. Right. But, but when you, and if, you know, if your business case is around the intermittent supply, I mean, there's as much wind as we could possibly deal with, I guess, in this country. Is that fair to say? Or is it a matter of harvesting it and actually being able to capture it? It's a matter of harvesting it, being able to capture it and use it, potentially at other times. Like we're in our fuel, if you like, the fuel we would have access to more so than most parts of the world is wind. Yeah. So we're, it's like the South companies were on oil, we're on wind, and wind could be a very valuable resource in the future. So the, if we can improve our skills in terms of uh, harnessing it, capturing it, um, storing it, potentially um, supplying it then to others at other times, um, we're in a pretty good position in terms of our energy. So for Ireland, the country, uh, it's around being able to capture those assets uh, or the, the, the wind, if you will, uh, and maximise the use of our solar and then to be able to balance that with what fossil fuels that we're taking out of the ground. That's the, that's the equation, if you like, that we're trying to balance. And we are also looking here in this country, uh, among other countries, at the whole idea of hydrogen and using the wind to generate hydrogen and then using that hydrogen to generate electricity at other times. That will take some time to come on stream, but it is another piece of the puzzle. So go back then to the puzzle. Uh, uh, so you mentioned there's kind of batteries, uh, there's reservoirs um, in terms of being able to store uh, this energy that we're, we're getting, uh, you know, from the wind or from the solar. Talk to me about kind of storage and, and what does that look like? So there's already quite a bit of storage out there. Um, if you think of, say, all the cold stores that you see around the country that are used for food distribution, yeah. they typically have temperature tolerance on them. So like your fridge at home, they want to be minus 18, yeah. but they can equally be minus 20 or minus 21 or minus 22. So if the uh, wind is blowing or the sun is shining and there's an abundance of energy and it's very cheap, you could actually put that energy into your cold store at that time. And then you could reduce the load on the cold store um, and let the temperature rise, rise to, say, minus 18 when there's no wind. Right. Or, or no solar. So it's actually acting as a battery. Okay. And and, and explain to me the the res, the reservoir, if I heard you correctly. Is that is that similar? That's a similar idea. So Irish Water, for example, have to pump water around the country and the reservoirs obviously have levels or level tolerances on them. So they can pump more or less water at different times depending on the price of energy. So if the price of energy is quite low or even negative because there's abundance of wind and it can't be used, they could actually pump more water up the hill to the reservoir. Yeah. And at times when the price is really high, they could reduce to a minimum or maybe to zero what they're pumping up the hill. Right. So when one looks at the future of kind of energy, we're in this uh, 
balancing mechanism between kind of wind, solar, renewables and uh, fossil fuels. We're in a trading situation, so so people are buying and selling it. And then we're in, in a kind of a, a frame of how do we capture and store this these renewables and such time that then we can pump them back into the grid. Exactly. So in some instances, we're just taking the energy when it's available, storing it in the product from the point of view that we can turn off the product later on. In other instances, I suppose, as we all get um, EVs and uh, move to uh, electric vehicles, you'll also have an opportunity there to optimise charging. So it could be quite windy. It's often quite windy at night in Ireland. So there will be optimum times to charge the car that you're taking in the maximum amount of wind. You're saving yourself a lot of money. But at the same time, you're truly renewable. Your car is actually driving on wind. It's not driving on fossil fuel. Fantastic. And do you, I saw one of the Tesla, I think the car manufacturer, um, they sell you kind of panels at home where you can, uh, as you say, capture that electricity and use it within your own house. Is that something that in the future as a consumer, I'll be kind of managing my own energy supply at home? Yeah, it will probably be done automatically for you. So people like us would produce microgrid controllers that would be price aware. So they'd know the prices that are available locally to you through your supplier and nationally through all the grid mechanisms, if you like, to, towards the electricity market, and it would autom- automatically optimise when to charge your car or heat your house or use solar to, to the maximum effect. So I have a, a kind of a smart network, a smart grid at my house, and it's it's kind of doing the work for me and is switching between renewables and switching between um, my whoever my supplier is and trying to optimise that mix. Exactly. So uh, these systems would be aware of the the local prices you face from your supplier and the national opportunities you have in the market through aggregators like us who kind of gather lots and lots of loads and and flexibility and put them into the market and also optimising your local generation based on the tariffing that you're on. How long, how how far away is something like that, would you think, Michael? Uh, We would already do that for, say, industrials and uh, commercial people. So I guess in the next few years, you're going to see that for residentials as well. Right, in the next couple of years. Fantastic. Um. Can I ask you who is your customer? Um, who is your customer uh, today? It's big industrials. It's it's consumers, or is it a mix? It's mainly industrial and commercial people, but we are moving our way down towards uh, the um, smaller commercial SME and the residential. As I suppose things electrify, because the situation is at the moment there's very little flexibility in your home. Yeah. So you might have a water heater that you probably don't use, um, electric water heater, you normally probably yeah. use gas to heat that. And that's to do with tariffs and price signals. But uh, in time, you're going to see a lot more happening at the home. So you're going to see potentially the electrification of heat, where you'll actually use a heat pump and uh, electric heating to heat water. You'd potentially have an electric vehicle. You'd potentially have uh, solar on your roof and you might have a battery. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of intelligent assets, if you like, that contribute to electrification and they need to be managed. So then people like us will be interested in managing those. Whereas today, once we go below the the reasonable size commercials, there's just no those assets down there. Right, right. The death of the immersion, uh, the the Irish mammies will be delighted uh, to hear that we haven't left the immersion zone. It might play a role uh, in terms of electric water heating if people start giving consumers smart tariffs. So if you're on a smart tariff and on the night in February the price is actually negative, so you're actually being paid to take electricity, you might turn it on. Oh, wow. So I could be paid to take electricity. And just explain to me why that might happen. So the prices go negative in the market at times when there's a chronic oversupply. So sometimes it's quite windy and there's no real demand on the grid. Um, So the price is obviously balancing supply and demand. 
and uh, if there is an abundance of supply and, and not much demand, the price can go zero or negative. And at that time, then the market is actually paying people who have access to the market to, to take that energy at that time. So that could be passed on to consumers. And my smart meter cops that on and, and would, would kind of react accordingly when it, yeah, when exactly. it spots that. Yeah, from a billing point of view, what people have to do is multiply, obviously, your, your kilowatt hour usage by the price at that time. So once the system is smart enough to do that, then all of a sudden you can take advantage of those kind of tariffs or those kind of situations. I, I read a quote, I think, uh, from you. I was looking at some stuff uh, over the weekend. Um, a lot of the change, uh, and this is you talking about climate, has has been economically driven, um, and both, I suppose, from industrials and from consumers. There's a sense that, yes, we know it's the right thing to do, but there's also a very strong business case inside in the change to renewables. There is, yeah. Now, it is generally, the main motivation for doing this is, is commercial, or has been up to now. Um, there is probably uh, a bigger drive, I think, coming out of COVID towards um, zero carbon. So if, uh, I, I suppose as they would say, if it washes its face, they'd, they'd look at it more seriously now, yeah. whereas before it needed to make a good return. What does zero carbon mean? Just help me out there. Well, it's the idea that you're actually running off renewables. So right. you're running off um, fuels that are clean. So you're running off wind, you're running off solar, potentially hydro, um, hydrogen as it comes along, rather than uh, coal and uh, oil and gas. Okay. You've mentioned hydrogen a couple of times. Um, are there difficulties with that? Is it is it something you see coming in as part of the mix? It's um, probably at an earlier stage in that it's efficiency is lower than that of other fuels. So if you took, a, say, a megawatt of uh, hydrogen um, at source, and by the time you'd be able to use that in your home or, or something like that, it's, it's about 17, 20% efficient, so you're only getting 20% of the power back out of it, right. of the power you have to put in. Fuels, by the time you get them to your site, are in the 30s of percent. So it's, it, it has a bit to go, but when it gets to the 30s, it becomes comp- competitive with petrol and diesel. Um, batteries and that are higher efficiency again. They're in the nineties, yeah, off percent. But but like they're not. They're they're make they're a good solution and they're doing very well at the moment. But they're not necessarily the solution to everything, right? So, so hydrogen could well play a role as as it um, evolves, I suppose, over the next number of years. But it will take a number of years. Very good. So there's an efficiency issue there, um, but 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 one to watch. Um, we're all about innovation and entrepreneurship on this show, uh, and I want to talk to you about your scaling journey. So tell me, what's the journey been like from starting in, in 2007, I presume, you know, building your first product, financing, funding that. Start talking or talk a little bit about that kind of early journey. Yeah, the early journey is, is difficult in that, uh, it's, you know, you're starting out with an idea. You're approaching customers. It's possibly you or you and a colleague, as it was in my instance. Um, we were looking to prove an initial products in that. Yeah. So that takes some time and uh, a bit of resilience, I suppose, just to, to do that. You have to believe in what you're doing. Um, but it does tend to catch momentum. Then if you have, if you catch a market opportunity that makes sense, um, you will start to get traction in the market. And as you get traction, then obviously you get more sales, you get more um, euros for product development, you get more interest from investors and the likes, and you start to scale at, at more of a rate. But one of the, and we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in the show, and there's this early kind of fundraising or this early piece of finding some money to build a product, to build a very early prototype and get into the market. How did you manage that? Well, it was kind of a leverage of uh, 
I suppose, some R&D funding and also some uh, funding from the likes of DBIC and those yeah. um, coming in to back it at a very early stage and uh, some uh, angel investors through HBAN. Right, and and the journey that you went through then was this kind of very early stage pitch, I guess, to investors, to, to the likes of maybe Alex and Eugene at, at Dublin BIC. What was that like? I mean, when you talk about pitching to investors and, and kind of trying to explain something, I mean, this was back, I suppose, 2008, 2009. So it's it's more than 10 years ago. There wasn't maybe the great focus on, on sustainability and, and renewables at that point in time. What were you selling at that point? It was still that concept. So we could see, and I think Eugene and, and Alex would have seen it as well, there was going to be a transition. We were at a very early stage of it that... Uh, as the more and more wind got added, as, as more and more solar got added, we were going to need all these flexibility services. And we could see a market forming. So there was a market starting to form in Ireland and UK. And we were starting to capture things like uh, coal stores and supermarkets and, and various things that could take advantage of flexible tariffs. So I think they bought into that concept. Um, the concept, it was, it was more around 2010, 2011, they would have made their investment. And uh, we then would have started to see the Irish market opening up for a demand-side response, and we would have gotten ourselves a good position in that market. Like We would be the strongest player in UK and Ireland now in demand-side response uh, of all the players. And do you, So you were selling to, to funders, both both uh, Alex and Eugene at, at uh, Dublin Bic, but also to, to Angels. You were selling a vision of something that was probably still five, six, seven years away. Is that, would that, is that fair to say? No, like we would have gotten traction in Ireland at that time, so we would have started to sell the energy management aspect of that probably back in from 2007 on, and we would have started to sell the demand side flexibility part of that from about 2012, which is around the time 2011 12 they made the investment. Yeah, so the market was forming at that stage. Like, Ireland is a relatively mature market in this area, so there, like, there is a you know, we hit 70% renewables, the wind on, on the peak in about 30, 30, mid-30s on average. We have a need for all these flexibility services. So there's quite a thriving market in that area in Ireland and indeed in the UK. Why is Ireland, just to digress, why is Ireland so advanced in, in that kind of renewable space? Because we're in wind central. Like we're in one of the windiest parts of the world. Right. So we have uh, the natural resource here, I suppose, and it can be harvested. And we have put a lot of it onto the grid. Okay, uh, back to to Grid Beyond. Talk a little bit about customer acquisition. Um, again, I suppose the same question from a different angle. You're you're going to big industrials or to uh, grid operators, and you're selling them something that you probably haven't fully built yet. Hobbs, that like? <laughs> yeah, you are looking for early adopters um, in in terms of the markets, but you're also bringing a product that's new, and those early adopters really do exist. Like there are people out in the market who will buy into a new idea, a good idea, um, and we'll help you to develop that idea. And we found that in some of the cold store operators and some of the supermarkets and, and in the, some of the industrials as well. So no no great resistance to, to what you were offering? Maybe a sense that, you know, go away and develop it and bring it back to us? Or was there a collaboration between you and the potential customers to develop this? It was more of a collaboration because some of the things already existed. So some of the cold stores, for example, would have been on a pass-through tariff. So we could optimize them. The pass-through tariff is a tariff that reflects the real cost of energy. Yeah. And we would then optimize them against that real cost of energy, which would have quite a variation on it. Like in your home bills, you don't see any variation on price, but there's a huge variation in the market. So we were able to basically drive the cold store against the uh, price of energy, which made quite large savings for, for the customers. Very good. 
Michael, we're nearly out of time. Um, we ask everyone, uh, all our interview guests, to finish us off with a nice piece of advice for the listener. So I'll ask you to do the same if that's okay. Um, as a successful founder, uh, well advanced on the journey to scale, what's the what's the one thing that helped you get there? Is that your mind? Uh, is it a team? Is it a mindset team? What was it that, that you kind of think has really driven you on this journey? Well, I suppose it's, it, the big one would be to have a vision you believe in mm. and uh, find an opportunity that needs to be, or a need that needs to be met and then put the team together to go and, and meet that need and, and, and uh, develop the company that's needed to deliver the, on that, uh, solving that need or problem. Get yourself, a, a, be very clear about what it is you're trying to do and what it is you're trying to build. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us this afternoon and the very best of luck with Grid Beyond into the future. Thanks very much for having me. Not at all. That's Michael Phelan, the CEO and founder of Grid Beyond. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on sustainability, climate change and the future of our planet. And from listening to our guest today, I think we can agree there are some amazing Irish entrepreneurs making a real difference addressing this global issue. And we look forward to watching their successes in the years ahead. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking at the world of creativity and entertainment and indeed what is happening in the business of creativity. We will once again be talking to some incredible entrepreneurs and hearing how they are developing the next generation of Irish business success, where they are and what are the steps they're taking on their entrepreneurial journeys. We hope that the stories you heard today will inspire you. And if you have a great idea and are thinking of starting or scaling a company with global ambitions and you would like support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. So that's it. Join us again next week at 12 noon for Startup Nation. 